Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on pain. If you have not listened to our first recording on the pain pathway, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. Tanner here will do a quick review on the pain pathway itself, but if you really want to get into the nitty-gritty, I encourage you to go back and listen to that before we move on to our second talk today, which is basically how we want to inhibit the pain pathway. We want to go through the different medications that are in the class of opioids and just basically talk about the defining characteristics that separate one medication from another. And then we'll also go into a little bit of adjunctive therapy as well. But Tanner, before we get started, you just want to do a quick one or two minute review on the pain pathway itself just to refresh our memory before we get started on this medication. Yeah, absolutely. So the very beginning, you'll have a noxious stimuli. Your body will release prostaglandins and other things that will initiate this pathway. So you have first order neurons, which are picking up the stimulus and are going to take the stimulus all the way to the spinal cord. Here in the dorsal root of the spinal cord, it will synapse with a second order neuron in the lamina here, specifically with pain. Usually it's lamina one through five. And here there's also an area called the substantia gelatinosa where you'll have synapse and you'll also have some modulation of the pain pathway. Here you'll have your first synapse with the second order neuron. And specifically, we're talking here about the anterior lateral tract or the spinothalamic tract. And when it synapses with a second order neuron, it will cross to the other side of the spinal cord and then will ascend to the brain. Here in the thalamus, you'll have a synapse with your third order neuron, and that will take it to the cerebral cortex where you'll have your final perception of pain. At this point, it will synapse with an effector neuron, which will go all the way back down the spinal cord to the substantia gelatinosa. Here at this area, it can actually modulate the pain. And this is where we'll concentrate our efforts as far as the opioids go. This is one area that it will have a unique effect. Today, what we want to do is just give some characteristics about the different opioids and specifically talk about why you might want to choose one over another with specific patient population. We're not going to go into the dosages. This is just going to be a touch point for you to get an idea of which medications might be better compared to others. Moving into the opioid discussion, first of all, we want to talk about the opioid receptor itself. There are three main opioid receptors we want to talk about. There is a fourth one that has been discussed or even a breakdown between the original three we want to discuss, but for a general sense, we want to talk about three main categories, and that's mu, delta, and kappa. Whenever somebody asks you about how your opioid receptors are going to affect different parts of the body, it's important to understand if you're affecting the mu receptor, the delta receptor, or the kappa, because all three of them have different effects that you're going to see in different systematic parts of the body. So before I go into the differences between the three, basically what an opioid receptor is going to do is going to cause two different things to happen. And it does this through what's called the G-linked protein receptor. And if you remember from anatomy and physiology classes, 
there's a whole cascade of events that happen when you stimulate a G-protein link receptor. Well, in this specific case, when a ligand is bound to the opioid receptor, it's going to stimulate on the inside of the cell a inhibitory process that is going to block adenylene cyclase. When you block adenylene cyclase, it's going to prevent the transition of ATP being converted into cyclic AMP. So you're going to have less CAMP or cyclic AMP being produced. So that's the biggest thing I want you to get here is when you bind or agonize an opioid receptor, you're going to inhibit adenylene cyclase, which is then going to further inhibit the production of cyclic AMP. And that's going to do two things now. It's going to A, decrease the amount of calcium that is going across the membrane, and B, increase the amount of potassium that is going across the membrane. And here's why that's important. As Tanner was talking about how there's three classes or orders of neurons in this pain pathway, basically we're going to target the transition point or the synapse. We're going from one order neuron to the next order neuron. And how that works is at the presynaptic neuron, so if you can imagine we're at the synapse between two of these order neurons, the signal has been brought down the axon and it gets to the axon terminal and we're about ready to release the excitatory neurotransmitter, which is going to be either substance P or glutamate or whatever it is. And what's going to happen is, if you remember, in order to release a neurotransmitter from the end of a neuron, you have to have calcium rush into the cell. Well, if we're going to prevent calcium from rushing into the cell, it is then further going to decrease the amount of excitatory neurotransmitters that can be released. On the flip side, we're going to also affect the postsynaptic neuron, which is now the next order neuron in this pain pathway, and it's going to increase the amount of potassium that is able to flow out of the cell. Why that's important is if we get rid of more potassium from the cell, it is going to lower the current resting membrane of that cell and make it harder to reach a threshold potential to cause a stimuli to continue on through that second neuron. So basically, whenever a opioid receptor is bound, by altering either the potassium or the calcium flow across the membrane, it's going to do two things. A, prevent or reduce the amount of neurotransmitter being released from the presynaptic neuron, and then B, make it harder for whatever neurotransmitters do get to the second neuron, it's going to make it harder for an actual stimulus to reach excitability and go through that next neuron in the process. Yeah, and I think it's important that although all of these receptors work similarly, where they are in the body and where they're found are different. So you're going to see different symptoms depending on which types of receptors are stimulated. So for example, mu receptors, you're going to see bradycardia when those are stimulated. You'll see your CO2 response curve shift to the right. That's because of decreased respiratory rate. You'll have increased tidal volumes. Your ICP will increase, and that can be in part because of your CO2 increase. You'll see meiosis, nausea, vomiting, whereas the delta receptors, this is going to be where you'll see respiratory depression, you'll have urinary retention, and you'll have pruritus with this one. Or That's a hallmark of the delta receptors. And then your kappa receptors, you're going to see much more sedative effects with these. So you'll see sedation, hallucinations, meiosis. Um, you'll also see diuresis. Whereas if you remember, like I just said, both of the other ones will have urinary retention. That is a difference with the kappa. And then kappa also has some anti-shivering effects as well. Another thing that opioids can cause is skeletal muscle rigidity, especially up in your chest, abdomen, and throat. And basically when this happens, if you give a high enough dose of opioids, it can cause this rigidity to occur and it makes it very difficult to mask ventilate a patient. So just know if this does occur, you're either going to need to reverse it with Narcan, but 
if you reverse it with Narcan right before the surgery, it's kind of counterintuitive because we're trying to provide analgesia before the surgery. So it's, it's better at this point just to be ready to intubate the patient and be able to take over mechanical ventilation. Also with the skeletal muscle rigidity is going to decrease the thoracic compliance and increase the amount of oxygen consumption just due to all those muscles just being constricted and tight. So there's going to be also a backflow in pressure and an increase in pressure in your CVP, your PAP, and your PVR. So your whole pulmonary circuit back into your, your right atrium is going to be backed up and cause eventually even an increase in your ICP pressure. So just know if this skeletal muscle rigidity does occur, be prepared to not be able to mass ventilate very well and you might just need to intubate. Also know that the treatment for this is not necessarily to give Narcan simply because you may not want to reverse the opioids that you just gave, but rather just give a paralytic after you intubate to try to decrease the amount of muscle contraction and rigidity that's occurring. I think that's basically the setup to what the bulk of this episode is going to be about. So we have the anatomy, we understand the different receptors. Now we're going to talk about the specific types of medications. Just in terms of potency, the most potent is going to be sufentanil. That's a mu agonist. The least potent is going to be meperidine. So it goes sufentanil, fentanyl, and remifentanil are equal in potency. Alfentanil, hydromorphone or dilated morphine, and then, like I just said, meperidine is the least potent. So basically what we want to do is go through different types of these medications And rather than give you a whole slew of information about dosage, onset, peak, duration, for time's sake of this talk, we want to go into the more defining characteristics of what separate one drug from the next. So first of all, we want to talk about morphine. Morphine is the prototype opioid agonist. We basically view everything off of morphine. So in terms of potency, we we kind of, at least I often get the the question of, well, how potent is this compared to morphine? How many more times potent is this medication compared to if you give X amount of morphine? And so it's kind of like the, the standard which we view other things, at least in my experience. But it's mm-hmm. the, the least lipophilic. And so if you remember with, with lipophilic in terms of um, being able to pass through lipid membranes, things that are lipid soluble are going to be able to pass through membranes. This is a big key for either getting something that is oral to be digested into the system. So if you give a a low lipophilic medication orally, you're not really going to get it into your system to begin with. It also becomes uh, a big importance when you're talking about being able to cross into the CNS system, so your blood-brain barrier, which in this case, if you're not as lipophilic, it's going to be less CNS depression. So we're not quite as worried about causing that rapid CNS depression after we give a dose of morphine compared to the other medications that we're going to go into. And then also just talking about in terms of excretion and things like that, the more hydrophilic you are, the easier it is to pass out through the urine. If you're more lipophilic, you're going to be able to get into more body cavities and become more distributed throughout the body. So that's just a a very quick review on what the importance of being soluble in a lipid membrane does. So just remember morphine is the least lipophilic of all these medications. And so it's going to have less crossover into that CNS system. And you're going to have a less dramatic decrease in in, in depression in the CNS system for that reason. So another part of morphine we want to talk about is that it releases histamine. So the medications that are grouped here that release histamine are either codeine or morphine. Codeine, if you recall, is a prodrug to morphine. So that would make sense where that also releases histamine. And then you also have meperidine and oxycodone. 
So Tanner and I like to group things in easy categories to remember things rather than just brute memorization of fact after fact. So when it comes to histamine release, just remember those four medications are classified as different than the rest. If you recall what Tanner talked about earlier is you can kind of have some bradycardia that occurs when your mu receptor is going to be agonized. So for the most part, you're going to see bradycardia, but in these drugs, when histamine is, is being released, you might actually see some tachycardia and some hypotension occur. Awesome. Do you remember which neuromuscular blocking drugs release histamine? Um, Atricurium and one other one. I think it was pancuronium. No. No, pancuronium is vagolytic. So it causes tachycardia for a different reason. Um, is, it, is it vecuronium? It, it might be vec. I know it's not cis. This is the well, point of the podcast. No. We literally did this last week and we can't remember. So Mi- Mivicurium. Mivicurium. <laughs> I think it was Mivicurium. <laughs> Okay. Pretty sure. I think it's atricurium and bivacurium. But yes, you're yeah. exactly right. Oh. <laughs> that was a plug for the podcast. Make sure and you it, listen because we literally forget it so fast. So let's now let's talk about some metabolism and metabolites, which ones you'll be concerned about. Mainly, let's think about morphine and reparidine. These will have active metabolites, specifically M3G and M6G. And these are able to enter the CNS and can cause some respiratory depression. And so I remember specifically from the ICU, that was always the consideration when you're giving morphine that you were concerned about their respiratory status. This is why, because the metabolites, again, will be active and can cause that respiratory depression. These active metabolites will be excreted in the renal system. So if you have patients that are on dialysis or have renal failure, then you're going to specifically want to avoid these. So remember that for morphine and meparidine. Also codeine. Codeine is a prodrug like Cole just mentioned, and the active metabolite is morphine. So that is an additional one that you'll want to avoid because again, as it's metabolized into morphine, then you can get further metabolites that will cause the respiratory depression or the renal complications. Yeah. And it's, it's good to note here that if you don't have the renal complication, you can give morphine and not expect a lot of respiratory depression because you know that once you get that metabolite of morphine, it's going to be cleared out by the renal system. But if it is not being cleared out, it can just start now going into the CNS and cause that respiratory depression, whereas the original morphine does not cross through the CNS. On the mm-hmm. flip side, as Tanner talked about, meparidine has also an active metabolite. This one causes CNS stimulation. It can cause seizures. So I like to think of it as anything along the morphine cascade. So if you have codeine, which is then broken down to morphine and then broken down to the metabolites of morphine, once you go down that process, if you can't excrete it, you're going to cause res- respiratory depression and CNS depression. Whereas the meparidine active metabolite called normaparidine it will enter the CNS and cause stimulation and cause seizure-like activity. So that's a big difference to keep in mind. And speaking of meparidine, we'll just go into that medication as well here. So meparidine is also a weak serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And in order to understand the significance of this, I want to quick refresh here the descending inhibitory pathway. So to recall how this works is the descending pathway is basically going to release either norepi or serotonin. And what this is going to do is two things. A, it's going to go back down to that substantia gelatinosa, which is where the first order neuron then synapses with the second order neuron, and it's releasing the excitatory neurotransmitters that we've talked about before. And the norepi and the serotonin are basically going to be released from this inhibitory descending pathway, 
and are going to inhibit the release of the glutamate or substance P from the first order neuron. So it kind of does the same thing as that new receptor that we talked about or opioid receptor at this site, which is going to inhibit the calcium being brought in and then decrease the amount of excitatory neurotransmitter being released. So it does a similar thing there. Additionally, the norepi and the, and the serotonin are going to stimulate the inner neurons in this space. So when the interneuron is then stimulated, the neurotransmitter that it releases is enkephalon, which is our endogenous opioid. So then that's perfect. That's exactly what we want now to bind to our opioid receptor at this substantia gelatinosa and then going to cause the effects that we've already talked about in terms of decreasing the calcium and increasing the potassium. So that's the importance here of this descending pathway. So why does meperidine, which is a weak serotonin reuptake inhibitor, affect this? Well, it's going to decrease the amount of serotonin that's being brought back in to that descending pathway terminal, and it's going to increase the amount of serotonin that's present at that spot to inhibit the pain pathway. Now, we don't want to give this medication with any other MAOI. So remember, an MAOI is basically a medication that is going to increase the amount of serotonin there as well. So we don't want to give too much increase in serotonin and risk having serotonin syndrome or something like that from happening. The other important thing with meperidine that I want to talk about is it's the only medication in this class of opioids that looks similar to an atropine structure. And so by having its atropine structure, it's going to be able to bind to similar things that atropine does. And so it can bind and cause tachycardia at the heart. It'll also cause some mydriasis and some dry mouth. So you got to think it's going to cause that anticholinergic effect. So if you have a question, which opioid medication is going to cause anticholinergic-like effects? think meperidine because of the fact that it looks like atropine. And then, like I said earlier, it's going to release histamine. And the special thing here is it's going to have anti-shivering effects because it also binds to a kappa receptor. And if you remember what Tanner said earlier, the kappa receptor is the one that decreases your shivering. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast. For more episodes, audible care plans, and other bonus content, Go to patreon.com, search Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast, and become a member. Once a member, you'll have access to Student Nurse Anesthesia Podcast Premium, which includes all of our content ad-free right here on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so the next one I want to talk about is remifentanil. And what's special about this is how fast it's metabolized. So instead of being metabolized by the liver, it's hydrolyzed by plasma cholinesterase. Again, this is not the pseudocolonesterase, this is the plasma cholinesterase. So what's really interesting about this is the context-sensitive halftime is still going to be less than four minutes, regardless of how much dose you give. So usually with these medications, the more dosage that you give, it's going to build up and your half-life is going to be increased. Not with remifentanil. Remifentanil will still come off super quickly because it's hydrolyzed by these plasma cholinesterase. You need to know that if you're giving a patient this medication intraoperatively and they're going to need pain control postoperatively, you need to give another medication because, like we just said, this is going to come off super fast. The next one we're going to talk about is alfentanil. And so this is going to be a really fast acting opioid because of its low PKA. If you remember when we talked about PKA, basically this is all relative to the pH. And if we're giving this IV, Hopefully our pH is 7.3, 7.4 range. And so this PKA is about 6.5. That means it's going to stay unionized, which will allow it to cross lipid membranes and you can have those CNS effects, the analgesia that we want. You can have that very quickly. 
One important thing to note with this is if the patient is on erythromycin, this can prolong the metabolism of alfentanil, and this is where you can get some increased respiratory depression. So important to look at the different medications that you're giving to your patients as these might interact with their metabolism. Awesome. So the next drug we're going to talk about is methadone, more specifically a mu agonist, and then a NABDA antagonist. So this brings up a good point with NABDA, NMDA is the receptor that's going to bind to those excitatory neurotransmitters on the postsynaptic membrane or the postsynaptic neuron. And if we're antagonizing this, we're going to basically block the amount of excitatory neurotransmitters that can bind and cause the signal to increase. And it also inhibits the uh, reuptake of your serotonin and norepinephrine which, as I talked about earlier, we want to keep those neurotransmitters present in that substantia gelatinosa that it continued to inhibit the pain process from continuing on. Another thing with this medication is it increases your QT interval. So really be concerned here about possible torsades. And it's very long acting compared to the other medications. So it's really good for chronic pain because you're not having to dose it as extensively. And the thought behind this is that it's longer acting and because of a extended release form. And then it is also a really extensive protein binding, which means it'll basically not be metabolized as quick because it'll pass through that hepatic circulation connected to that protein and not be subject to be metabolized as it goes through there. So it'll stay in, mm-hmm. in the patient's system a long time. The next thing we wanted to talk about is tramadol. It's a synthetic codeine. It's also a mu agonist, and it also inhibits norepi and serotonin reuptake So just know that it kind of has a similar effect here of methadone, not as long acting. And then it also a big thing here, it can cause seizures as well. So that's another key characteristic with tramadol is watch out for seizures. Yeah. And tramadol seems to be a pretty nice, I don't know that it's necessarily a great drug for really intense acute pain, but it seems to be a really nice adjunct as well because it is like you just mentioned, it's inhibiting the norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake. So this can accelerate some of our own body's response to pain and all the modulation that our body is inherently doing, it's going to basically make that more effective. Next one we're going to talk about is hydromorphone. And this is going to be similar to morphine. It's very close, but it is more potent than morphine and it is more lipid soluble. So again, if it's more lipid soluble, that means it can be a little bit faster onset. It's also nice because it doesn't have the metabolites like morphine does. So you can use these with renal failure patients. Next one we're going to talk about is fentanyl. Fentanyl is probably the most commonly used opioid. So fentanyl compared to remifentanyl is going to have a longer context-sensitive halftime. So the more dose that you give of fentanyl, that's going to compile and will have additive effects. So you'll have more uh, ventilatory depression, sedation, those types of things. Because again, the more dose you give, the more it's going to have a profound effect both for analgesia, but also for the symptoms associated with it. It is very highly lipid soluble. So again, this is another fast onset drug, which is really nice, but it can take a long time to eliminate with the elderly or if you're using it in neonates. The next thing we want to talk about is the use of a opioid agonist slash antagonist. So basically, these are medications that will have a agonist effect on some of the opioid receptors, but an antagonist on the others. So an example would be 
might have something that agonizes a mu receptor but antagonizes a kappa receptor. And these are kind of nice because they have a limit to the amount of respiratory depressant and sedation they can cause, as well as the physical dependence that can occur from these medications. There's a couple of different ones that we want to talk about, but they're basically used more for patients with chronic pain and those that have had opioid addictions in the past. So again, like I said, these don't have as much of those addictive qualities. So that's why it's kind of a nice transition to, to kind of get these patients away from that addictive part of opioid medications. The first one we want to talk about is buprenorphine, which basically only agonizes the mu receptor. It's long acting. So you want to make sure if a patient is on this medication that you stop it at least two to four weeks before surgery. And especially because this may not be fully reversed with Narcan. So just be aware of that, that if a patient comes in, is taking this medication, you may not be able to completely reverse the effects with Narcan before your procedure. Another one I'm going to talk about here is butorphanol, which is an agonist at the kappa receptor and an antagonist at the mu receptor. The last one I'm going to talk about is nabufen, which antagonizes the mu receptor. And this can be useful for the fact that because it antagonizes mu, then it can kind of reverse a fentanyl-caused respiratory depression. So if you give another opioid that agonizes mu and can cause some respiratory depression from that, you can actually give this medication and it would antagonize those effects and kind of help out. But it also agonizes some of the other receptors, so it's not like you're completely giving Narcan and reversing everything. And so I don't have a lot of experience of giving these medications, but for the fact that it antagonizes some of the receptors but agonizes the others and that it has a ceiling effect really allows it to have some useful characteristics in, in different situations that would arise. So you started to talk about this a little bit, but now let's talk about reversals. So the main one that you probably are familiar with is Narcan. And this is an opioid antagonist. So this will antagonize the mu, kappa, and delta receptors. Mainly, it has its effect at the mu receptor. It's going to be metabolized in the liver. It's going to have a very short duration. So you frequently may need to give additional doses of this. The response to Narcan, I don't know if you've ever given to it, but it's not pleasant to give this to people. They don't exactly love you after you give them the Narcan. (laughs) So this can cause tachycardia, hypertension, and this is really sudden. So in extreme cases, you might actually get pulmonary edema from this just because you have such an increase in afterload so drastically. Uh, So keep that in mind that they may have some hemodynamic effects along with their lovely personality effects after you give uh, this Narcan. Also keep in mind that it can cause nausea and vomiting, and important to remember this does cross the placenta. Next one is methyl naltrexone, and this is important to know because it does not cross the blood-brain barrier, so you would not want to give this if somebody was having respiratory effects and you were trying to reverse them. This would not be one that you'd want to pick. Another one is nalmaphene, and this has a longer action than Narcan, so if this is somebody that either has high-dose opioids or are chronic abusers, then you, you may want to choose this over Narcan. The last one we talk about is naltrexone, and this is good for helping reduce the dependence on opioids. And this is also used frequently with people who are dependent on alcohol as well. Additionally, to wrap up our talk, there are some adjunctive therapy that you can do as well. One of these would be NSAIDs. So this would be your Toradol, your ibuprofen. Basically, these work by reducing the amount of prostaglandin that is being synthesized. 
And basically, this reduces inflammation and reduces the severity of the noxious stimuli that is being converted into the electrical stimulus in that first order neuron. So this works more at the, the actual site where the noxious stimuli is being produced at. And it doesn't actually take away fully the pain signal, but it, it does decrease the severity. And the big thing with the NSAIDs is that it is excreted and metabolized in the renal system. So just know that anybody on renal failure or dialysis, you should not give NSAIDs or you should be very cautious of giving NSAIDs. Also, Toradol can cause some bone fractures and different issues that can arise with the structural integrity of the bone. So just be careful to give Toradol if you have a patient that has a condition that would cause them to have weak bones. Another one that we want to talk about is ketamine. Ketamine, you can give as a, I use it a lot in the ICU as a sedative. Another nice thing about it is it antagonizes your NABDA receptors. So as we talked about earlier, that is what is the receptor on the postsynaptic neuron in this pain pathway, and it's what the excitatory neurotransmitters bind to. So if we're antagonizing that, we're going to limit the continuation of the pain being sent up to the brain. So that's the important thing with ketamine. Another one is a alpha-2 agonist. So this would be your clonidine, your Presidex. And what this does is it also inhibits the amount of neurotransmitters excitatory that are able to be released. And it just continually blocks that or reduces the amount that are being sent to continue on the, the pain pathway. So that's why you often hear sometimes that Presidex or even clonidine that they're both alpha-2 agonists and they can have a helpful effect on the analgesia uh, of a patient. The last thing we'll just talk, touch on quickly is you may see lidocaine or magnesium given to be adjunct therapies for these opioid medications. Those will antagonize the sodium channels. This is just a brief overview of all the different medications. And hopefully this will just be a quick touch point for you as you look at your specific patients and you understand all the different disease processes that are going on. You may want to opt for one of these medications over another. So hopefully this was helpful and will be useful to you as you go throughout your practice.